This episode is brought to you by IVP. We can't ignore color, class, or culture. Instead, we must engage matters of race with a responsible and generous posture. In his book, Gracism, David A. Anderson revives the biblical model for showing special grace to others on the basis of ethnicity, class, or social distinction, offering you an opportunity to extend God's precise grace to people of all backgrounds. And as a listener of this podcast, you can receive this book for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at IVPress.com. Trust is the ultimate practice of the present moment. Trust in the unchanging father of lights, who's a good, good father, who's working out his purpose in our lives. And that our lives in the present moment, there's opportunities to be of service to his kingdom. And that kingdom reigns. Actually, right now, peace is reigning. That is actually the ultimate state of reality. Yes, there are storms, but peace is a trait and it's a promise. If there's anything that anyone could take away, it's not what you do. It's already an inheritance you own. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Digital Examine podcast. I'm Jay, and I'm so glad you are joining us for today's conversation. Um, my guess is that in our age of great distraction, you are much like me in that you probably find your thoughts wandering. It's a really interesting thing about thoughts. They really center us or decenter us from reality. I can be standing in line at the grocery store, but my thoughts wandering to what I am going to do later in the day or something that happened in the past. And though my body is present in that line, everything else about me is elsewhere. And that's fine when you're in line for groceries, maybe, but we find ourselves distracted, perpetually so, in some of the most important moments and with some of the most important people in our lives. This perpetual distraction is utterly dangerous. It's a way, really, to live life embodied in place, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, totally elsewhere. It's sort of a placeless life. Um, like the ancient philosopher Seneca once said, that to be everywhere is to be nowhere. And so today, I am talking with Regina Chow. Trammell, who is a licensed therapist and a professor uh, at Azusa Pacific University, and she's the co-author of a book called A Counselor's Guide to Christian Mindfulness. And I think for some of us, we hear the word mindfulness and we immediately attach it to all sorts of what we might consider totally secular fields of study in psychology and therapy and on and on. But Regina has a really compelling case to make that mindfulness, detached from all of the sort of cultural assumptions we make about it, is actually an incredibly Christian, Jesus-centered way of navigating through life. 
So I think today's conversation is going to be enlightening for many of us um, and hopeful and helpful uh, for all of us. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Regina Chow Trammell. Regina, thank you so much for joining me on the Digital Examine podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jay. So appreciative of this opportunity to talk with you. This is great. Yeah. Yeah, really looking forward to chatting with you as well. Um, I'm really fascinated by much of your work. So for folks who maybe aren't familiar with you yet, just give us a brief synopsis. You know, you are many things. You're a licensed therapist and a professor and an author and a follower of Jesus. And sometimes those intersections for a lot of people, we don't think about one person being all those things. So <laughs> tell us a bit about that, um, about your journey. How did you get Get into you know therapy and ac academia and writing and sort of maybe focus more on your interest in in mindfulness. Yeah. Um, how did that all come about? Great, yeah, no thanks. Um, so a little bit of a journey. I think it's just kind of this interesting intermix of you know as a person, you know, as a second generation Chinese American. So just even this juxtaposition of like culture and um, my interests. So I was born and raised in LA and on my father's side, um, we're practicing Buddhists and he himself is an atheist and kind of didn't grow up in the church, um, but discovered the church early on. And so, um, so Grew up in a two-parent household, my mom and dad, very supportive. And um, I remember my dad telling me my senior year, I think of high school, saying, I think you should be a counselor. You like to talk to people a lot. And I was on the phone <laughs> quite a bit. And um, I'm like, huh, I didn't know there was a job. So fast forward, got my psychology degree, and then um, was practicing as a therapist. Did that, went to grad school and social work. And um, actually was an Asian studies minor. I want to bring that forward too. And so mindfulness, I think, you know, this kind of interest kind of really was birthed kind of in that cultural stream, right? Of like familiarity with culture and Buddhism, but also coming to the Lord and uh, being a follower of Jesus. And so um, around 2008, I would say was a time when mindfulness started to come into therapy vernacular, thinking about how do we um, help our clients deal with things like trauma. And so I did some um, trainings in mindfulness at the time. And also at the time, we'd been living in the western suburbs of Chicago in the Wheaton area for many, many years. And I heard about a position at Azusa Pacific University, where I'm now a professor. And it was kind of a way for me to and we've been praying like, Lord, we want to, um, my husband and I and my two young kids at the time, be near family again um, after being away for so long. So um, so I was getting curious about mindfulness because a lot of the trainings were really secular or, like I said, Buddhist-based and had applied for the job at APU. And then they kept questioning, when are you going to get your doctorate? So that sort of prompted this discussion and thought about, okay, if I get this job, then maybe I need to go get my doctorate. And so, and it just came about the right time around, you know, this new learning about mindfulness, trying it in clinical circles and practicing those skills with my clients and seeing kind of the benefits of it. And then 
Um, I started at Baylor, a social work program, their PhD, and that was the focus of my research, which is, what is mindfulness as a Christian? How come I'm only seeing it in secular and Buddhist circles? And where are the practices in Christianity? Do they exist? And are they efficacious for the kinds of things that we're dealing with, depression, anxiety, and trauma? So um, long story short, I feel like mindfulness helped me through some of these phases and these transitions, right? Like doctorate. So there's kind of like a lived experience of like how mindfulness can be helpful. So that's kind of fully orbed <laughs> answer, but yeah. maybe that gives you and your listeners kind of an idea. How did, how did we get here? Fascinating story. You mentioned it a couple of times about, um, you know, you're, you're finding versions of mindfulness, certainly in the secular arena, yeah. um, some, some roots of it in Buddhism. And I want to address that and ask you about it, actually, because I think there is this significant misunderstanding. A lot of it is semantics. A lot of it is just sort of like cultural caricatures. When many people, Christians, followers of Jesus, hear the word mindful, mindfulness, I think for many Christians, there's this sort of assumption, well, isn't that a purely secular field of study or isn't that sort of much more Eastern religious thought? So talk to us a little bit about the intersection between mindfulness and Christian faith and yeah. maybe some of the historical overview of Christian mindfulness. Yes. Yes. So mindfulness and um, Christian practices really are ancient. And I think about kind of what's called the two different streams, like cataphatic and apophatic type of theologies that are lined up in that practice. So the latter, actually, especially the apophatic, is much more unfamiliar to modern Christians and evangelical Protestant circles. That mindfulness, really, we can trace back to Catholic um, you know, ancient Catholicism prior to the Reformation and all that stuff. And then we can even trace it back even farther to Eastern Orthodox um, practices. So when I think about mindfulness, I think about um, even people like St. Teresa de Avila and some of the mystical streams of Christian faith that, again, I would say are unfamiliar. And that's why we get this sort of skepticism and actually lack of knowledge of how mindfulness is actually rooted in Christian thought. Mindfulness scholars and practitioners actually are familiar with the Christian stream of mindfulness. It's just within our Christian circles, we kind of are siloed from, you know, certain periods of time of when our theologies were sort of formed. So I would just say, go back a few hundred, maybe even millennia, and you'll really start to see this sort of um, miss, not an embodiment of awareness that we tend to see in the prayer life of followers, in things like the, what the Bible talks about, incense and um, worship that's embodied, and just kind of this present moment awareness that. Um, secularists offer as description, but I think as Christians, we can own a little bit. I think about Psalms 139, 23 to 24. The New Living Translation says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And so the Christian take on mindfulness is 
I'm going to be in a present moment with no judgment so that I can allow God, give him room to search me, know my heart. And that's kind of a present orientation, a way to not just be still, but to be actively in relationship with God and allowing him to form our heart, mind, and soul. And that is a mindfulness. To sum it up, mindfulness is awareness. And Christian mindfulness is awareness of God. And then having God be part of that process. We talk about awareness of God quite a bit on this podcast. I think in many ways that is the thrust of what we're after. Not that God is absent and we have to sort of, you know, ascend the heights of the uh, you know, the cosmos somewhere where God is floating in the ether, but that he's as close as our very next breath. And as you describe it, especially as we ponder the Psalms and the way the psalmists sort of bring themselves to an awareness of God's presence, it is a, is a form of mindfulness to focus our thoughts. And, you know, I think for many of us listening, um, one of the great challenges we face, this may be universal sort of in our modern digital age, but Distraction is the norm, and distraction in many ways uh, is one of the great enemies of mindfulness. So I want to ask you, you know, what do we risk when we allow ourselves to live in a state of perpetual distraction, which the data tells us that is actually how most of us are living, just in perpetual distraction? You know, how does it impede our formation into Christ-likeness? obviously impede our ability to live with a deep mindfulness and awareness of uh, of God's presence in every moment? What a great question, Jay, because I think we're talking about, you know, I'm thinking about even just this technological age, right, of what we even think about and how we think. And I just finished a class last night as we end the semester of like, what does make us human and what is it about who we are as human beings and the de- the developmental kind of um, impediments that technology sort of uh, thrusts upon us. So I think we risk knowing peace and experiencing it beyond it being a fleeting emotion. You know, we risk, I think, such estrangement from a stable peace, from who we call and worship the Prince of Peace, that we risk being able to make healthy decisions that lead to our flourishing of ourselves and our communities. And often we distract ourselves, like put my therapist hat on, we often distract ourselves to avoid or to delay. You know, that we want to avoid things that are uncomfortable, whether consciously or subconsciously, or to delay things because it might mean a change or a grief or a loss or whatever, or something really difficult. So we risk true peace You know, and so the distractions offer us a way to delay, postpone, avoid. And so I think the tides of technology continue to serve up distractions, as you kind of talked about. And we know actually in the research that we've kind of have now years of research that social media use, the higher and the more engaged we are time-wise and intensity-wise in our cognitions, the higher our levels are depression, the higher levels of our anxiety, and the higher image, higher um, levels of poor body image, even like these are researched facts. Um, I'd like to put it this way: influencers offer up sound bites rather than sound wisdom 
to address kind of the tribulations of our time. And, you know, for us as individuals, I think we often experience peace as an emotion rather than a state, you know, that we want to, when we think about even mindfulness research, we talk about it as being state or trait. And state is kind of a, you know, a, a, a more, an emotion that you can experience for a while. And trait is kind of character driven, like a, a, a lifestyle, if you will. So that when we, I think mindfulness can help us move from just a fleeting emotion to at least a state and then eventually a trait. And so I think as as we become more aware, and as this podcast focuses on, right, this idea of awareness of God, he promises he's a prince of peace in Isaiah 9, 6. He's capable of granting us peace in Philippians 4, 7. So when we are distracted and big things, right, like when wars rage, 2024 election season comes you know, only God, I think, can grant us that peace that transcends all earthly threats to peace everlasting. Don't we want that? What an incredibly sobering and jarring line from Regina. Estrangement from peace and estrangement from the Prince of Peace. That we often distract ourselves to avoid or to delay, but that avoidance and delaying can actually keep us from true peace. Because, as she noted, peace is not a fleeting emotion. It's a state or a trait, a sort of way of being in the world. As you'll hear later in the conversation, peace is already our reality. It's just about being mindful and focusing our hearts and our thoughts, our emotions and our whole selves on the reality that the Prince of Peace already rules and reigns. And someday he will return to enact his rule and reign in full when he makes all wrong things right. So right now, take a moment and think about the chaos in your life. Think about the things that are distracting you from peace and then ponder the reality that the Prince of Peace has already come and he has already offered you his peace that transcends all understanding. So take a few deep breaths, think about the Prince of Peace ruling and reigning in your life, and then we'll return in a moment to our conversation with Regina. We want the thousands of hours we work over our lifetime to matter. How do we go from being defined by what we do to having our work become an expression of who we are? Barry Rowan suggests it begins with surrendering our whole lives to God. In The Spiritual Art of Business, Rowan, who is called the corporate mystic, invites us to be transformed by God, that he might transform the world through us as we begin to see our work as an extension of our faith. 
Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on The Spiritual Art of Business at ivypress.com. That seems like such a critically important distinction. It's so helpful to me to even hear you talk about it that often, for me personally, when I think about peace, I am so tempted to think about peace as a particular emotion. And what that means then is to achieve that emotion of peace, air quotes, Mm -hmm. I have to eliminate particular things or, um, uh, you know, change circumstances and situations so that they're situationally sort of positioned for me to experience the emotion. But peace as a state or as a trait, you know, when Jesus says, my peace, I give you his peace or the peace that transcends all understanding. It's really not dictated by circumstances or situations, an election or um, a pandemic or a job situation or family tension or whatever it might be. It's a fascinating thought. I want to continue along those lines and and just ask about, you know, um, living in the present moment, experiencing peace as a state or as a trait. Uh, I think, you know, most of us think about like I like I do, you know, curating circumstances and situations in a way that I can just sort of decrease stress so so that I can be present and at peace. But, you know, let's get a little more practical. Like, is there a way to be present and to live at peace amid stress, amid the impending election or the next pandemic or job loss or what, or grief or trauma? Like, is there a way to experience peace in the middle of all of those realities. Yeah, I just like this picture that came up for me when you were talking, Jay, about, again, being in the eye of the storm. It's not like the storm isn't thinner, right? We're not in denial about that. But we can live in a, in a maybe, maybe we're not feeling the emotion, but the trait, actually, of peace is there, right? And I think about Paul. I mean, Paul, I think, provides an excellent example of being a peacemaker and, and, being someone who in, embodies peace, and he's doing that in several different ways. It, and I kind of think about peace. I've been kind of actually contemplating this idea of what it means when God says we are to be peacemakers. So there's something about peace. Again, like we're saying, it's not just emotion, but we have to make peace. You know, that there's that's some of our calling. So we see that Paul is captured, right? And arrested in the temple in Acts. You know, I think it's 21 or something. He's brought to Roman authorities in 25. These are not friendly individuals, right? This is a very um, tumultuous time. But each time he makes a case, right? So he uses the full capacities of his intellect, his identity as a Roman citizen. You know, there's some kind of peace about who he is, I would say, that he kind of harnesses in this storm. You know, so even in the storm, I think knowing, right, that who you are and who who is working in you, you know, that is stable. That is trait. You know, you don't have to have the emotion of peace to know that about yourself. Um, 
And so Paul is at peace with who he is as a Christian. He's at peace with God and he's working with him. And we see him kind of move through that society at kind of an individual level to keep in kingdom purpose. And then he's doing it at a collective level, kind of what we talk about in social work as a meso or macro level, where he's confronting kind of the authorities at this time. So there's something about peace that has also an active component that we we talk a lot in therapy about fake it till you make it. You know, that sometimes we learn about peace by doing things like peacemaking, and then we feel the emotion after. I think that's a significant paradigm shift for many of us listening. I think most of us assume that peace is um, something that happens to us, but peacemaking, which some of us are familiar with at a a macro level, it's actually uh, an invitation for all of us on an individual level in in micro ways even. So I want to ask a more specific question about that. I think for many of us, much of our angst sort of derives from relationships, you know, disordered relationships on some level are the bedrock for for much of what ails us in in just human experience. So talk about that. Talk about disordered relationships, what they do to us mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Hmm. Um maybe some of the components that we do control and don't control when it comes to trying to make peace and um you know carve out a path toward healing and wholeness and if there is any sort of real intersection between that effort and mindfulness Mm -hmm. you know talk about those things sure absolutely i think you know depending on how we've grown up you know our first relationships are with our families and sometimes there isn't this sense of like you call it you know order um and so i think I'm, and I'm also guessing here that the folks who are listening um, are, you know, academic in some manner of speaking and have a really active, vibrant, hopefully, faith. And so I think when I think about disordered relationships, I actually think about kind of this overachievement in our relationships and social obligations um, and that many of us kind of buy into a kind of a false sense of purpose for our lives and kind of view relationships as almost like another responsibility. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes as Christians, I think we show up in our work and we show up in our families and we show up in our church communities as kind of responsible, obligated individuals without a lot of mindfulness, that we're sort of mindless about our relationships because they're about task. And and we see people, I don't think we mean to see them that way, but I think sometimes we see them as objects rather than fully orbed human beings. Um, We want to give and we want to serve, but we kind of do that in a task manner. And um, what Martin Buber would call I-it instead of kind of an I-thou sacred relationship. So there's something about, I think, mindfulness that can return us to this idea of repair and rest and support in our relational, um, you know, in our relational domains, whatever that looks like, whether it's in your home or your church or your friendships or whatever. And there's something to be said about what we inherit in our families that that can kind of perpetuate that I it. So especially if you grew up in a very high achieving family, then 
you know, you, you kind of are an it. And so instead of a I thou and I you, which again, Buber talks about, but um, so I think mindfulness, my favorite thing about mindfulness is this idea of co-regulation that, um, you know, when we're together, that God kind of designed us for relationship. And so that we don't have to do anything to actually feel peace with another person, especially if let's say you're stressed out, Jay, and I'm super Zen peaceful, (laughs) that us being in the same room, that our breath patterns, our respirations will actually start to sink together. And that, you know, what we can actually offer in a relationship is kind of our mindful presence that reminds each other, again, in the midst of the storm, that we operate out of peace, you know, that we can make peace in our relationships, even just by being present. And so the way we do that is we have to remember that for ourselves, you know, that that character trait of peace or that gift of peace actually is operating and that our bodies can sync up to that and then our minds follow. And so there's something even that's not just cognitive that's happening. So I would just say disordered relationships really need to move away from kind of an it, uh, you know, an it um, perspective to a how do we be, how do we just be together and and help each other towards these other kind of transcendent experiences as human beings. I want to make sure I'm understanding you right. It, it, I think I'm hearing you in some ways, you know, the I, it versus I, you, or I, thou, there is a tendency in all of us to dehumanize one another, to dehumanize ourselves by in the example, which is very familiar to me in just the part of the world I live in Silicon Valley, in the shadows of Stanford and startup culture and Apple and Google and just everyone is high achieving here. We can all sort of become tools in a machine, you know, these sort of in these cogs and begin to see others that way and to begin to see ourselves that way and really, um, see one another through a purely utilitarian lens or a functional lens. What have you done for me lately sort of thing. And what I'm hearing you say, if I'm hearing you correctly, and I'd love for you to expand on this because I think it's so important, is that we need to learn to experience peace as a state or a trait. We need to be mindful of the reality that we're humans and that we are loved by God first and foremost, irregardless of our achievement or lack thereof, and that we begin to see one another that way as well, intrinsic value in each other, which requires real mindfulness in uh, a world that is so functional and utilitarian and sort of up into the right success oriented. Is that accurate to say? Would love to hear more. I think you said that so much more beautifully than I did. So I appreciate you (laughs) summarizing it in such a clear way. but absolutely, that's it. That's the heart of it. Yeah. And I think, and I thank you for sharing your context. And I thought I knew that about you, but I think as I think about that, and it's kind of this, you know, pulling of, you know, this age that we're in, that I think when we think about burnout, actually, if you look at this, the um, research on burnout, that it's not actually, Jay, decreasing the activities that you do necessarily. It's really being mindful about the choices being, you know, ahead of your purpose, 
and also feeling like you belong and that you have connectedness, that actually the antidote to burnout is not less things to do. Actually, you can still be as busy as you want to be in Silicon Valley, but it's really the repair of the bond, there was relational bonds in that I-thou relationship that actually mitigate burnout and stress, for instance. Yeah, really helpful. Um, you know, Romans 12, Paul has that wonderful line, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I want to ask you, um, share, share with our listeners practically ways that we can in, in today's sort of culture, in our day and age, ways that we can begin embodying Paul's encouragement to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Like what, what does the renewal of our minds actually look like? Are there some specific practices uh, for us to consider? Yeah, absolutely. So I do have two practices. Before I want to talk about those, though, I do want to um, share about what I think renewing our minds actually means just from kind of the way I think about it conceptually through a mindfulness lens that actually yeah. I think we need to expand our view of what a mind is, that sometimes we think of our mind as just cognitive. And again, a lot of our theology is very cognitive, but what I've been learning through mindfulness practice is this idea that our mind is more than just our cognitions, that actually neuroscientists say our mind is gut, brain, and soul, you know, and that I think about the orthodox view of practicing fast. They're in the fast season right now. And part of that is to temper their bodies. And part of the tempering process is a renewal of your mind, but that's through the body. And so, so could we expand this idea of renewing our minds as also being body and soul. And I think that changes things up, Jay, because I think sometimes we can't think ourselves through, you know, the right solution right. to renew our mind, but we can practice things like a fast if we need to, mm -hmm. to temper our bars, or we can pray in an embodied way, or we can be in community and be um, being renewed through community mm -hmm. of our minds. So a couple things that I've been experimenting with um, and that I do in, on an individual level. So let me talk about a couple of the individual things and then I'll talk about kind of more of this community thing. But um, my favorite thing that I have in my book is this tea drinking exercise. So it's this embodiment of like holding a mug of tea and I do this before I teach or if I'm, you know, in a, in a place where I feel a little stressed that I can't get my mind there, but there's something about holding that warm cup of tea in my hands and I kind of, you know, am aware that God is in that, this exercise that the hands around the cup of tea is like God's hands around me. And I savor that drink and I drink in kind of this grace. And so it's this kind of practice for me of, you know, being mindful of God's presence in my life and bringing awareness to that. But that's actually through drinking a cup of tea and kind of a familiar one that some people may have heard about is a body scan. So you kind of start in the top of your head, go down to your feet and you notice. And I like to kind of bring God in and I just ask people to breathe and I ask um, them to kind of breathe in you know, the words of God's peace to allow God in each breath kind of expand the cells of their bodies that feel tight. And we work our way down from the top of our head, back of our eye sockets to the jaw, neck, back, lower, all the way down till we get to our feet. And so it's kind of a fun practice that I think, and is research-based that can help with anxiety and stress. 
But I also think about renewing our minds right in a kind of a collectivist posture too. And so it's not necessarily accountability, I would say. I think in our in our Protestant circles, we talk a lot about renewing our mind and kind of perfecting our our soul work. But I think about even the practice of forgiveness um, and letting go is kind of a way to renew our mind. And that's sort of the soul work that we might do in relationship or community with each other. And so if you can't think yourself to renewal, I would just say it's a virtuous cycle. You could start with something in your body, like a tea drinking or a body scan, and that might open you up, right, to thinking about something differently and then experiencing a relationship differently or vice versa. So yeah. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> but. They're tremendously helpful, what you shared. It's affirming in many ways for me on a personal level. I run several times a week. But up until recently, I never ran on Sunday because as a pastor, Sundays are such long days for me. And I realized at one point it was because I had sort of detached my body from the soul mind work that I think I'm doing on Sundays. But recently, a few months ago, um, on a whim, one Sunday morning, I got up at 5.30 and went for a run, ran a few miles, and I knew I had the long, long day ahead of me preaching multiple services. But it was like, I felt so much better that Sunday than I had felt on so like almost any other Sunday. And it was something that I intellectually, cognitively knew, like, oh, running is good for me on a mental level, on an emotional level as well. I had just never done it because I thought, okay, I'm doing mind to soul work on Sunday. I'll do my physical body work of running and staying in shape Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday or something, but integrating them. So now it's just become yeah. a rhythm to wake up early and run specifically, make sure I get a good run in on Sunday mornings. So these little things where what you're talking about, you know, mindfulness is not just thinking the right thoughts. It really is a, a whole bodied sort of participatory action, which even secular science is revealing to us that that is really yes. how the integrated whole of a human body works. So yeah, I'm so grateful you shared what you did. As we sort of close our, our conversation, I'd love to invite you to speak to our listeners. Um, Maybe more pastorally, I heard you say in a talk that you gave this line that was just so um, convicting and beautiful and even haunting in all of these wonderful ways for me. You said, the past cannot be changed. The future cannot be forced. Past cannot be changed. The future cannot be forced. I just, I found this to be such a liberating reminder. So as we close, just want to ask you, can you expand on this idea for our listeners? as a way of offering some freedom, maybe from the shame people feel about their past or anxiety that they might feel about the future. Um, hmm. And just give, give our listeners an encouraging, an encouraging word there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, you know, just contemplating that. And I'm so glad Jay, that you found freedom in this. Cause I, I don't think it's glib to say the past is the past. You know, I, I would, follow up with, you know, that there is a practice of acceptance here about the past, that I think mindfulness is awareness and acceptance as well, and that there might be work there on regret, forgiveness, and letting go and grief. But but at some point, 
it has to be kind of left there. And the future is a practice of surrender. So when I say, yeah, the past cannot be changed, there's an acceptance. We have to accept that. And, and there might be some work, like I said, in the future can't be forced. It means, hey, we got to surrender our control, right? When we control, we are deluding ourselves, I think, to think we can actually force a future vision. And I think, you know, we're in an age where we like to cast vision and we, and there are some good things about that. By, and I think it's important to have goals and to be clear about them. Um, you know, but we, we must move again into practice of both acceptance and surrender. And that can only be in the present moment. And that sometimes our life is moment to moment, right? Yes, there are connections to make, projects to accomplish, hurdles and barriers to work through. But um, that trust is the ultimate practice of the present moment. You know, that trust is trust in the unchanging father of lights, who's a good, good father, who's working out his purpose in our lives and um, and that our lives in the present moment, there's opportunities to be of service to his kingdom and that kingdom reigns. What I get really excited about this side of heaven is that actually, actually right now, peace is reigning. That is actually the ultimate state of reality. You know, we think about epistemology, like I just feel like what is real peace is the actual most real thing that we know. And so, um, and that is happening right now in this present moment. And um, we don't always see it, but it's happening for eternity. And that place is a place where we'll have new bodies and we're going to be the most free we'll ever be in that, in, in that place. In the meantime, be in the present moment and allow God to search our hearts and show us that way everlasting. It exists already. So if we focus on the past, we're missing out. We've trying to, you know, force a future. I think we miss out on the freedom of the peace while we're in the storm, the side of heaven. So yes, there are storms, but but peace is a trait and it's a promise. And um if there's anything that anyone could take away, it's not what you do. It's already an inheritance you own. Yeah. What a line. It's not what we do. It's something we've been given, an inheritance that's ours um, through Jesus. Thank you so much, um, Regina, for this conversation. So helpful for me, and I think so helpful for many who are listening. Um, for folks who are you know, have not yet uh, dug deep into your work. There's so much there that I think will be helpful for folks. Um, what's the best way that they could find your work, uh, connect with you online? Where can people go? I have a very conflicted relationship with social media, but I do exist there. And so you can find me on Instagram at Regina underscore Chow underscore Trammell. And I'll do post some things about some of the things we're talking about. And I have written a book and it's called The Counselor's Guide to Christian Mindfulness. And so there's some practical scripts that I talk about the tea drinking exercise and all the things that um, they're actually worksheets and practices. So I'm happy to share that with anyone who wants to reach out. And you can find me at Azusa Pacific University. I have a faculty email that you can always reach me out, uh, reach out to me there as well. Yeah. Regina, thank you so much for your work and uh, for offering your work as a gift to the world. And um, yeah, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me, Jay. Good to meet you. 
Hey, thank you guys so much for listening. My hope and prayer for you uh, and for myself is that today and in the days to come, you might live mindful of the present moment, the fact that God is with you in every moment. And the only reality there is, is the the reality of your lived life right here and right now where God is with you. Um, If this podcast is helpful to you, be sure to share it with friends, uh, subscribe, rate, review. All of those things are really helpful to us. And I am so grateful that you're joining us for these conversations and uh, can't wait to talk with all of you again very soon. The Digital Examine is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, for 25% off. Sound Engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Helen Lee, Travis Albritton, and Andrew Bronson. Our production assistants are Christine Policcio and Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, J.Y. Kim. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast.